we are back. Let's talk about some science and medicine and technology for a bit, starting with, I guess, an, an embellishment of that talk about vitamin E and Alzheimer's uh, from the last segment. It's probably worth noting that uh, the new study done by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs on high doses of vitamin E note, noted that it may counteract mild to moderate forms of Alzheimer's disease, slowing its impact on daily life by about six months. So we should note that uh, this is not a dramatic result, uh, helpful, but they they feel that vitamin E did not stall cognitive or memory deterioration, but it could help patients retain their independence a bit longer. Should be noted, too, that in these studies, uh, um, one group received 90 times the government's recommended daily allowance for vitamin E. So it's no doubt premature to uh, say that, uh, you know, that supplements and vitamins are useless. They may not produce the major benefits that those who sell them like to say, but, uh, you know, I'm sure they have a role yet to play in, uh, in our lives. And something that we are pretty sure has no role to play in our lives would be cigarettes. And here's a fascinating study that's peripherally related to uh, our nicotine addiction. Uh, it's noted that, you know, for most creatures, nicotine is, of course, a poison. But tobacco hornworms eat uh, tobacco plants all day long, consuming enough nicotine to paralyze most bugs. Scientists have now figured out why. The hornworms expel the nicotine through tiny holes in their bodies in a process that's called defensive halitosis, <laughs> rather whimsically termed, I would say, which wards off the ravenous wolf spiders that would like to dine on them. Ian Baldwin of Germany's Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology said it's really a story about how an insect that eats a plant co-ops the plant for its own defense. Scientists now realize that the tobacco hornworm, this tiny leaf-creeping caterpillar, is hundreds of times more immune to nicotine's nerve-jangling effects than human beings. And they first um, stumbled upon this during an experiment in which the hornworm's natural habitat was altered. The caterpillars were fed nicotine-free tobacco plants. It was observed that those worms were getting wiped out overnight by predatory wolf spiders. So, in a subsequent experiment, starving wolf spiders were presented with regular and nicotine-free caterpillars. The spiders steered clear of the regular hornworms while feasting on the ones that were not able to mount that nicotine defense. Interesting. Speaking of toxic diets, how about this item? from the New York Times. Studies conducted earlier this year show that the longer immigrants live in the U.S., the worse their rates of heart disease, high blood pressure, and diabetes, mainly due to their increased consumption of fat and sugar-laden junk foods. Apparently, immigrants' American-born children have higher incomes than their parents, but on average live shorter lives. Ow! And uh, speaking of health hazards, it's been long known that cataracts are associated with radiation, specifically the ionizing radiation from the sun. People that have more sun exposure uh, have a higher tendency to have cataracts. It's noted that in the animal world, uh, they turn up in zoos, but in the wild, it's pretty much unheard of. Reasons are pretty obvious. Losing eyesight is, in effect, a death sentence for a wild animal. It has to find its own food. And if that animal lives long enough to develop that disease, starvation or predation would quickly follow. But the article in The Economist from uh, September 27th of last year notes that uh, 
A study shows that cataracts unrelated to age are surprisingly common in birds living near the site of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster of 1986. In fact, knowing this connection between ionizing radiation and cataracts, researchers thought that it might be worth going over to Chernobyl and looking at the wildlife there and seeing uh, what might be found. So scientists went out and collected over a thousand birds in the greater Chernobyl area then examined their eyes. They found that almost 400 of the birds had some form of cataract. But they note that contrary to the way cataracts work in the rest of the world, those in the eyes of birds living near Chernobyl appeared regardless of whether they were young or old. And they had previously done a study of birds near the Fukushima nuclear disaster in China and uh, have concluded that these birds near Chernobyl seem to be tolerating the effects of radiation better, which hints that uh, natural selection is already underway and that uh, birds in Russia are somehow able to cope with higher radiation levels because, well, the ones that couldn't were already culled from the population, leaving behind only those most suited to survival. Well, this does raise the question of how birds, which are so dependent upon good vision, uh, can po- possibly manage with impaired vision. Well, don't know. I'm sure they're going to do more studies on this in the future. And something I hope they do some follow-up studies on regarding biology and medicine is this uh, piece in Scientific American, which just scares the hell out of me. Yeah, December 2013 issue, Scientific American. Article titled... Fungi on the March. A piece by Jennifer Fraser is subtitled A Strange Fungal Disease in Canada and the US Heralds a New Threat to Human Health. The article starts off by noting that uh, up in Vancouver back in 2001, dead porpoises that had yeast packed lungs were washing up on the shores of Vancouver Island. Cats and dogs in Vancouver were also having some trouble breathing and uh, producing some strange symptoms for the vets to notice, uh, like weeping holes through the skull of the animal when the yeast infection ate its way through the skull. At the same time, some people up there on the island uh, were also falling ill with with an unknown respiratory malady. They coughed a lot and their energy was sapped. They couldn't sleep. Chest x-rays showed ominous lung or brain nodules. Biopsy tissue proved the culprit to be a type of yeast. Despite their varying symptoms, the pets, the porpoises, and the humans all shared a single tormentor, Cryptococcus gatii. This is a fungus never before seen on the island, nor known to survive outside the tropics or subtropics. According to the article... This disease was apparently picked up from the environment down in Australia from eucalyptus trees. But evidently it's quite rare and not very virulent, or at least not till recently. Now a cousin to this organism, Cryptococcus neoformans, is something that's uh, been more of an issue with, uh, with the HIV era, with immune suppression. But this new development uh, where people are getting sick and sometimes dying, in some cases dying even though they were not immune suppressed in any way, is ominous. Noted the article, fungi of long plague plants, famously felling the towering elm and chestnut trees of the eastern U.S. And more recently, fungal infections have become alarmingly common among animals. From ponds in South America where frogs' fungus-clogged skin stops their hearts to caves in the eastern U.S. where moldy, shivering bats drop pitifully from the ceiling, 
pathogenic fungi are running amok. Historically, the fungi that infect humans have been known more for, you know, those laughable TV commercials about irritating skin infections, uh, more than serious problems. Our immune systems and high body temperatures, which are too high for most fungi to tolerate, ensure that most people in good health generally shake off serious attacks. There are some exceptions here in the U.S. Uh, valley fever in our area, southwestern United States, does affect certain, uh, certain people. Particular ethnic backgrounds, Filipino people and blacks tend to be uh, more susceptible to this uh, fungal attacker. Histoplasmosis affects people in the Midwest, the United States. But notes the piece, for reasons not completely understood, valley fever exploded eightfold within its usual range between 1999 and 2011. So that despite the surge in recent fungal infections related to, as mentioned, immune suppression, fungal attacks affecting many healthy people at once, as in Canada, have been rare and largely caused by fungi within their usual ranges when they encountered more favorable environmental conditions. But Cryptococcus gaudii is different. Until it emerged on Vancouver Island, it had occasionally sickened healthy people elsewhere, but never before caused an outbreak and a burst of unexpected infections. Apparently, data collected between 2002 and 2006 showed that the infection rate on Vancouver Island was 28 cases per million, three times higher than the rate among humans in tropical northern Australia, where they were more familiar with this disease. So what's the root cause of this? Global warming? A lot of people think so. Noted the piece, emergence of Clostridium gaudii as a pathogen may have resulted from a serendipitous confluence of factors. Several years of warmer winters and drier summers in British Columbia, soil disturbance from development, and the fact that this is taking place in an area popular with both mobile home tourists and retirees who tend to be more susceptible to infection than younger people. Well, what does this mean? It means we need to be more careful in our monitoring of outbreaks and this and other fungal diseases and probably need to ramp up our... uh, Development of antifungal antibiotics. Fungi and us are a lot more alike than bacteria and us. So developing uh, compounds that selectively kill one while leaving us okay is harder to do. But obviously, uh, some work needs to be done in this area. Scary. But um, in other happier news related to fungi, we have the following which is a piece by Richard Webb in New Scientist magazine titled Magic Mushrooms, subtitled Far From Being a Load of Old Rot, Fungi Could Save the World. Noted Mr. Webb, mention the word fungus to most people and the likely response is a shudder. Fungus is the mold on bread, the mildew on the ceiling, the infection in an unfortunate place. But that's a tad unfair. Fungus is also the yeast that made the bread and our frothing pint of beer. Not to mention the blue graining in our gourmet cheese. As with many long-term relationships, humankind and mold are bonded in love and hate. And, according to the piece, if, uh, if we're described as pro-fungal researchers get their way, the relationship between man and mold is about to experience a fresh bloom of love. A slew of fungal technologies are creeping out of the woodwork. They promise everything from better drugs to environmentally friendly materials, to green fuels. Peace quotes Lynn Boddy, a mycologist and passionate advocate of mushrooms at Cardiff University in the UK, is saying that without fungi, planet Earth wouldn't work. You'd be up to your armpits in dead stuff. 
And if I may digress from this article in peace for a minute to ponder something, and I hope, dear listener, that if you have more exacting knowledge on this, you will drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. But my understanding is that back between that time in which life exploded here on Earth 600 million years ago and the great extinction that took place at the beginning of the era of the dinosaurs, plant life here on Earth just grew at prodigious rates and basically piled up upon itself to form huge mats of organic material, which were later compressed to form the fossil fuels we are using today. Evidently, somewhere along the line, the whole recycling process of fungi and other things, bacteria, and perhaps developed to the point where they were able to keep up with the amount of organic material being produced by plants. Therefore, as far as I know, we don't have any fossil fuels being laid down over the past several hundred million years. So, evidently, 400 million years ago, without fungi, perhaps, here on planet Earth, you were up to your armpits and dead stuff. But to go on with the piece titled Magic Mushrooms, so that most of the action of fungi happens out of sight, a fungus might have a toadstool poking, poking up from the forest floor or from a tree stump, but its business end lies in a mass of filaments called the mycelia that can spread vast distances underneath. And you know what this stuff is. You've been digging in dirt, no doubt, at some point and found these massive white filaments. The piece mentions Armillaria soldipes, also known as the honey mushroom. Notes that in the Malheur National Forest in eastern Oregon, outcrops of its attractive yellow Fruiting body, i.e. the mushroom, are the only visible sign of what is thought to be the world's largest organism. As it was first recognized in 1992, its single subterranean mycelium is believed to be more than 2,000 years old and to extend possibly as much as 10 square kilometers. Yeah, one organism extending across 10 square kilometers. Mycologist Lynn Boddy is quoted as saying, they are remarkable chemists. The mycelium is also the fungus's chemical powerhouse, secreting enzymes that break down surrounding organic material or even rocks, and so release the nutrients into the soil. Many fungi also produce volatile chemicals to defend their territory against bacteria, insects, and other fungi. The piece notes the chemical activity of some mushrooms have long been held in high esteem, of course, there's the effect of magic mushrooms containing the psychoactive ingredient psilocybin. And uh, rather more boringly, the antibacterial properties of the soil-dwelling genus Penicillium, from which we have pills that kill bacteria. The fungi thought of it first. We're just imitating what their uh, chemical laboratories already figured out. In a follow-up, something we talked about in this program a couple years ago, they cite Gary Strobel, microbiologist at Montana State University in Bozeman, who thinks that uh, we're on the, the cusp of something really big. About 10 years ago, while he was on a field trip to an ancient forest in Patagonia, he found a wood-decaying fungus whose chemical output seemed to consist largely of a volatile organic compound of the sort found in diesel fuel. The fungus has since been identified as a strain of Ascarine sarcoides, commonly known as jelly drops. That's a count of their, uh, their gelatinous fruiting bodies. The fruiting body is basically the mushroom. Back in Bozeman, 
Gary Strobel built a reaction vessel like an overblown kitchen to sink, sink to see if he could get the fungus to do the same thing in the lab. After a lot of tinkering, he got a fungal mix. He says it took just two weeks to turn dead leaf matter into a serviceable mycodiesel fuel. Said Strobel, I put it in my motorbike and it works just fine. Strobel, not surprisingly, is now working to commercialize this idea and we wish him well. There's also some hope that, uh, that fungus will be able to produce a biodegradable packaging material. Turns out the, that the mycelium of which uh, fungi are made have these um, hard walls that are made of um, chitin. And you are quite familiar with uh, this polymer material, chitin, my dear listener. If you've ever eaten crab or lobster... That's what their shells are largely composed of. And of course, the good thing about that is that chitin's been around for quite some time, and it is thus biodegradable. Things have figured out how to eat it and grow on it and nourish themselves from it. So, uh, hey, maybe we'll see some packaging material made out of fungus in the not-too-distant future. We hope so. Something's got to be done about all that styrofoam. And in further follow-up on something we've cited on this program before, there was a, an article in the L.A. Times by Monty Morin last April that I've had uh, here in a pile. It's time to pull it out and note that according to uh, Mr. Morin, circumcision is known to reduce a man's risk of HIV infection by at least half, but scientists don't know why. A new study offers support for the theory that removing the foreskin deprives troublesome bacteria of a place to live leaving the immune system in much better shape to keep the human immunodeficiency virus at bay. The article cites a rather graphic uh, description by uh, Dr. Cindy Liu, study leader of uh, this research, noting that anyone who's ever lifted a rock and watched as the earth beneath it was quickly vacated by legions of bugs and tiny worms would be familiar with the principle. Hey, hey, hey! But, uh, I guess we get the idea. After the foreskin is cut away, the masses of genital bacteria that once existed beneath it end up disappearing. And in yet another metaphor, pathologist at the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Arizona said, it's the same as if you clear-cut a forest. (laughs) The community of animals that once lived in the forest is going to change. At any rate, this represents a pendulum swing back in the direction in favor of circumcision, which had been taken quite a beating in recent decades. Some went so far as to say there's no compelling medical reason to have the foreskin removed. Well, apparently now there is. There's long been suspicion that, uh, that uh, infection rates were down in uncircumcised men, which did seem to offer a credible biological reason for the process. But, um, but I would note that uh, my colleague in medicine and former radio star Dr. Dina Dell wasn't buying this and was railing against circumcision for, for many years. This may be one of the few things in which uh, I kind of disagreed with Dr. Dean on. We've talked in the past about how exciting it is that we're finally figuring out what bacteria are present on the human body because once we've got that figured out, we will perhaps know how to work with our own ecosystems a little more scientifically. And it appears that uh, these same principles will apply to the penis. There is some current reasoning that that uncircumcised penises with uh, maybe maybe this greater bacterial load we're talking about, particularly anaerobic bacteria, 
can cause an inflammation that will trigger the body's immune system and summon a variety of cells to fight a perceived threat. Among those fighters, T4 cells, which are what are infected by HIV. The virus needs those cells to survive and replicate. So, I guess the logic here is that you circumcise the male, you reduce the bacteria, you reduce the T4 cells, and you give fewer targets for a, uh, a roving HIV virus to attack. Makes sense. And you know, I'm just reluctant to close the segment on that note. So, um... How about those Niners? Yes, it turns out that Radio Parallax's favored uh, NFL team has advanced in the playoffs, defeating uh, Green Bay in a frigid Lambeau field in Wisconsin, and last Sunday defeating the uh, Carolina Panthers, leading to a showdown in Seattle between what are thought to be the two best teams in the NFC which means that this coming Sunday, Mr. McMillan and I are going to be uh, traipsing about on a Caribbean island trying to find a TV screen that's broadcasting the game. I found myself in a similar situation 11 years ago, uh, observing a Super Bowl between uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Oakland Raiders on the island of Antigua. Hopefully this search will add a new level of fun to the whole process of watching a football game. Kind of like watching the election results uh, or trying to from, a, uh, from an internet cafe in the Republic of Vanuatu on a Wednesday afternoon, observing what was taking place on Tuesday evening. That certainly makes life more interesting. Anyway, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got more, so stick around. When me and my friends go out in the we can't sit still, we can't sit down We don't like to fight and we don't like to scuffle But we dance all night doing the curly shuffle Hey Mo, hey Mo, hey Mo, hey Mo Well, uh, yuck, 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 yuck 